The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, that is a, a wonderful providence that that's our catechism question this morning because it pertains perfectly to what we are unpacking this morning. We have already confessed together in the Apostles' Creed. Just a few moments ago, we stood and said, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We're going to be thinking about that this morning. So let me invite you to open to the book of Romans. Uh, Open up to Romans chapter 1, and we'll just be looking at the first seven verses of Romans 1. As you're turning there in the New Testament, Romans 1 is on page 939. Let me tell you a famous story that I'm sure many of you have heard uh, before. Vince Lombardi, the famous football coach of the Green Bay Packers, was infamous for beginning training camp every year by holding up a football and saying, men, this is a football. Professional football players. And he did that, of course, to illustrate this essential principle. That no matter who you are and how long you've been about your discipline, you never move beyond the essential, fundamental truths. This is a football to football players. This morning, church, what we are saying is this is Jesus Christ. The most essential, the most foundational truth of the Christian faith is who Jesus is. And that's what we're unpacking this morning as we have been walking through the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed provides for us the essential truths of the Christian faith. And so if someone were to ask me, saying, I'm at the very beginning, I don't know anything, where do I start? A wonderful starting place is the substance of the Apostles' Creed as we unpack the distinguishing truths of the Christian faith. This is God. This is the Father. This is the Son. This is the Spirit. And today we come to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Now, last week we were unpacking the truths of the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, and we unpacked together the truth that God is the maker of heaven and earth, that God created all things out of nothing. He created you on purpose and for a purpose. And when he made you, he did a good job. That was really what we were saying last week. But very interestingly, I want you to think about this. Last week, when we confessed together, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, Christianity parted ways with religions of the Eastern tradition, with Hinduism, with Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Confucianism, and other Eastern religions that teach that God is the creation. God is in the creation. No, the Christian faith teaches that God is the ruler of creation, distinct from it as the maker of all things out of nothing. And so as we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed, we've already distinguished from other world religions. Today, we further distinguish ourselves as Christians from... Judaism and Islam, as we say, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Christianity stands 
on its own with its confession of Jesus Christ, with its true confession of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to see together this morning. So, if you've got your Bible open, let's pray. Heavenly Father, what greater topic, what greater subject matter for us this morning than to think of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so I pray that you would send your Spirit upon us that as we read your Word that Paul was inspired to record for us by your Spirit, that that same Spirit would rest upon our minds to give us illumination and understanding, would rest upon our hearts to fill us with love for Christ And Lord, that your spirit would move us to a place of deeper devotion or perhaps to a new place of allegiance to Christ as we confess the truth of who he is before a world that needs to know. So Lord, come now and bless your word to us, we pray. In that same strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. We're going to be reading from Romans 1, the beginning of Paul's address to the church at Rome, his great epistle. Uh, Hear now the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God abides forever. Uh, Keep your Bible open in Romans 1 as we unpack these great truths of the Christian faith. So, what do we believe about Jesus Christ? We believe in Jesus Christ, God the Father's only Son, our Lord. And we believe that Jesus is, according to his own testimony, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through the Son. The Christian faith proclaims a gospel of free and full salvation to anyone, but also to only those who come to Christ. Depending on who you are, depending on who you talk to, when you say that, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, the only Savior of sinners, that will either produce in someone Comfort or heartburn, rage, perhaps. That's true today, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with someone and said something to that effect and elicited a strong emotional response of rejection, but I want to say to you that the fact that people have responded to this proclamation with either faith or vehement rejection is not a new thing. In fact, It is a historical reality that the Christian faith did not expand in a world that welcomed it with open arms. In fact, the Christian faith expanded in a world that was, from the beginning, unwelcoming and hostile even. 
Rome was the controlling power in the Mediterranean world, and Rome was perfectly happy for Christians to worship Jesus as God. Rome was perfectly happy to add Jesus to their pantheon of many gods, and Christians would have no problems with the empire so long as they would worship Jesus as a god among all gods. But that's not what the Christians professed in the first century. They professed Jesus Christ, God's only Son, the exclusive Lord, the only one to receive worship and obedience. And where Rome would have met the Christians who capitulated and just added Jesus to the pantheon of other gods, to the Christians that said, no, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, they were the object of imperial persecution and scorn from the beginning. Because if Jesus is Lord, then that necessarily meant the Christians would not bow their knee to Caesar. Saying Caesar is Lord, they would say, no, Jesus is Lord. And there was great pressure upon them in that day, loved ones, it doesn't look the exact same in terms of pressure, but there is pressure upon you as a Christian believer to decide whether or not you will capitulate. To add Jesus to a whole host of melting pot of other deities and worldviews and religions so as to play nice with everybody and make all truth the exact same and completely relative, or to stand with the church through all the ages and say with love in our hearts for all mankind, Christ is the only way because he's the only Lord. So when you say that you believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the only way of salvation, and people look at you in horror like you just climbed out from under a rock, it's always been that way. Christians before you received those same looks and worse, but it did not stop them with courage in their hearts and love for their fellow mankind to say, Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. So you and I must, in our generation, say the same. So we're going to do that very thing. We're going to break down what the Apostles' Creed relative to Jesus and unpack these four realities. Jesus, as we speak about the humanity of Jesus, Christ, Secondly, his messianic identity, messianic identity of Jesus. Thirdly, his only son, as we speak of the divinity of Jesus. And finally, our Lord, as we think about the claim of Jesus. These four things, Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. Every one of those things matters. And so we're going to unpack them one, one at a time. Now, one more introductory word here. These things, I think are oftentimes so basic that they threaten us with the temptation to just tune out and ignore and say, oh, I know that, I know that. I didn't learn anything new. Put myself on cruise control and just kind of snooze through this reality. But loved ones, what greater reality is there in all the world than Jesus Christ? What greater truth, what greater subject is there to think about than Jesus? So let me implore you, whether these things are new or whether you have heard them your whole life, listen in faith to behold Jesus Christ.
God's only Son, our Lord. Because this faith of Christianity is built upon who Christ is. Think of it. The entirety of the New Testament, all 27 books, are written for one purpose. To proclaim and justify the claim that Jesus Christ is who He is. So do we know who He is? When you read the Bible, you find people asking all the time, Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? Everyone asked, Matthew 21.10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? The religious leaders, Luke 5.21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Crowds of people followed Jesus, Luke 7.49. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Herod himself uh, the, the, the governor of the region that Jesus lived in in Luke 9, 9 said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And Jesus was sought out by Herod. John 12, 34, the crowds answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, but how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Who is this? And in Mark 4, 41, the disciples themselves filled with great fear after Jesus stills the storm, saying, Who is this that even the wind and waves obey him? We must have a clear answer to the question, Who is this? So, who is this? Number one, Jesus. Jesus. When we speak of Jesus, look at how Paul introduces Jesus to us. Paul identifies himself as Jesus's servant, verse 1. Paul identifies himself as a servant to a master, and the master's name is Jesus. So Jesus is the proper name. Jesus is his name. It is the Greek version of the name Joshua, or the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means God is Savior. That's what the name Jesus means. Joshua in Greek, Yeshua in Hebrew, or in English, Jesus. God is Savior. It was the angel who told Joseph in Matthew 1.21, Joseph, name that child Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Properly, the name God is Savior. And so therefore, when we speak of Jesus, we are speaking of a historical person, a real person who lived and walked the earth 2,000 years ago. Jesus is not a myth. Jesus is not a fable. Jesus is not a legend or a tall tale. Jesus is not a figment, figment of imagination. He is a real, true, historical person. Mary's son from Nazareth in Galilee growing up in the carpenter shop of Joseph as a rule and traveling rabbi for three years was a man put to death by Roman authorities by demand of Jewish leaders around 30 AD. Secular historians report that. Jewish historians report that, that there was a man, Jesus, who lived among the region of Galilee, the region of Judea, in the first century. As the disciples proclaimed, this same man was put to death 
and was raised from the grave and was testified by thousands of eyewitnesses. The four gospel accounts describe his ministry and teaching in great consistent detail. When Christian believers say, I believe in Jesus, we are saying this is a real, true, historical person who really lived. What's fascinating, actually, is that there are those who attempt to deny that very reality, to which we can point again to these secular historians who report the life and activity of Jesus, but most importantly, we look to the gospel accounts that tell of his life and of his teachings. When we say the name Jesus, we speak of his real true humanity as a real person. Secondly, when we use the designation Christ, notice how Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, in verse 1, using the title elsewhere in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Do you notice how he uses the same thing but in different order? In verse 1, it's Christ Jesus. In verse 6, it's Jesus Christ. Now, let me, let me smile here. Now, you know... Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a designation of his title. It is his office. It designates his order. So Paul uses them interchangeably. Christ is not his last name, but his title. Christ is the Greek word for a Hebrew term of Messiah. Christos. Messiah meaning anointed one. To call Jesus the Christ is to designate Jesus as the Messiah of God's people. It identifies him as God's appointed Savior King for whom the Jews had been waiting for a long time. And the Jewish Messiah was expected to come into the world and establish God's reign on earth, set up his kingdom, and rule over all nations and bring dominion to the earth for God. And so to call Jesus Christ is to identify to Jesus the fulfillment of that messianic office to say Jesus is God's king, come into the world to rule. It is a decisive title of universal dominion that all must acknowledge. This is, in fact, the entire point of the apostolic ministry. Consider what Peter has to say in Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven or earth by which we must be saved, because only Jesus is the Christ, only Jesus is the Messiah, only Jesus is God's King, and so we must bow. To call Jesus the Christ is to say, this is the true anointed one. Now this is important for additional reasons. As we kind of think about Old Testament history, in the Old Testament, there were three roles or functions or offices that required the anointing of God. There were plenty of ways to serve God in the Old Testament, but uniquely there were three offices that required the anointing of God's Spirit. And they were the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the Christ he is the anointed one, and he fulfills all three of those offices. Think of it this way. 
because you and I are ignorant and need instruction, Jesus comes as God's true prophet to speak the word of God to us and to instruct us. Jesus is God's true prophet. Because you and I, by our sins, are estranged and separated from God, Jesus comes as God's true priest to bring reconciliation between God and man, to bring peace between God and man, between sinful humanity and a holy God. And because we are weak and so often helpless, because we need someone to guide, rule, and strengthen us, Jesus comes as God's true king to do that very king. Uh, very thing. Jesus is God's true prophet. Jesus is God's true priest. Jesus is God's true king. He fulfills all of the offices from the Old Testament. And so when we say Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, he is the fullness and the fulfillment of all of those things. Jesus, the Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, God's only son. Notice how Paul says it in verse 3 and also in verse 4. Paul tells us that the prophets of the Old Testament in verse 3 gave testimony concerning God's Son. That is, the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of God the Father as having an eternal Son who would come into the world. Verse 4, Paul says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection. The declaration, Jesus Christ, God's only Son, is a statement, a declaration, a celebration of His divinity. Jesus is God. Jesus is not just a historical person. Jesus is not just the anointed true prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament. Jesus is God. Mary's firstborn child, who we'll speak of next week and following, is conceived by the Holy Spirit, is the second person of the eternal triune God. This is perhaps the most staggering truth of Christianity, isn't it? And we celebrate it at Christmas. That God became a man. That the second person of the Trinity assumes upon himself a true humanity and enters into our world to redeem us and the world in which we dwell. He is uncreated. He is the eternally begotten second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is therefore not just some inspired good man. Jesus is not some kind of super angel. Jesus is not the first order of God's creation. Jesus is God. Now, if you want to learn more about that, should have come to Sunday school. I think I'm going to keep saying that every single week. So I'm teasing you here now. Come to Sunday school and learn more about these things uh, as we understand them. But when we say Jesus is God's only son, we are saying that Jesus is God. And you know what? Some people say, you know, Jesus never claims to be God. In this very kind of like high-minded, high-browed, intellectual critique of the New Testament, they say you cannot find a single verse in the New Testament in which Jesus says, I am God. Oh, to which we respond, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am God. 
assuming the divine name. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus accepts the worship of people. Jesus has demons fall down before him and they tremble. The crowds cried out, Hosanna. All creation obeys him. He raises the dead. He rises from the dead himself and says, all authority in heaven on earth is mine. And when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus accepts the title of the divine Son of God. Jesus is God. So we say, God's only Son. Jesus Christ, God's only Son. Finally, our Lord. This is the claim of Jesus. At the end of verse 4, notice how Paul says, Jesus Christ our Lord. And also in verse 7, Paul speaks of him as the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we mentioned those three offices of the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king. You know the thing that I found most interesting as I think about this, as I visit with people and talk about these realities? I find that people are quite pleased to accept the fact that Jesus is God's true prophet and therefore teaches them the truth and, and they say, sure, I, I like to hear what Jesus has to teach me. They love to receive Jesus as God's true priest because it means that they get their sins forgiven, right? That's wonderful. But it's in, in this reality of Jesus as God's true king, Jesus being our Lord, that we find people oftentimes a little bit hesitant, a little bit recalcitrant, a little bit angry, actually, at the notion of Jesus as Lord. Why? Because if I proclaim Jesus as Lord, then I'm saying that I'm not the Lord of my own life. And loved ones, that's exactly what it's supposed to mean. I said to you last week, I'll say it again, you're not qualified to be the Lord of your own life. You're not good at it. You screw it up. And so do I. You need not only a Savior, but you need a Lord, someone to bow your knee before in humble adoration and worship. You need a Savior who is both prophet and priest and king. As Paul says in Philippians 2.10, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow. We must confess Christ as Lord. We cannot take Jesus and the benefits of Jesus' ministry as Savior and not also confess Him to be our Lord. He is both, and He must be both. Jesus is truly man, truly God, the true Christ risen from the grave with all authority and power, and He has the right to rule over us, and we have no right to resist his claim. Jesus is Lord. And so when in the first century the Christian believers said that with boldness, they were saying, because Jesus is Lord, I am by consequence saying, you are not, which included Caesar himself, which brought them such great persecution. But when we positively say Jesus is Lord, we are negatively also saying, I am not. You are not. They are not. 
Christ alone is Lord. Think of it this way. The incarnation, 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes to earth. Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Jesus invades space and time. Invades space and time with the purpose of love and grace that brought him to earth with this gracious invitation, come and follow me. And dear friends, Jesus still does that. Jesus invades our lives and forces us to come to a point of decision about him forces us to come to a point of making up our minds where we will decide whether or not we will bow the knee to Jesus Christ in loving, humble, tender affection and glory or whether we will reject Him. The book of Revelation says that at the end, Jesus Christ rules with a rod of iron so as to illustrate what Paul says in Philippians, that yes, indeed, Every knee will bow. And there will be those who bow the knee out of loving embrace for Him. Or there will be those who will bow their knee because Christ will bring every knee to the ground in light of the greatness of who He is. And what remains then for us as the church is to confess this truth before the world because we cannot remain neutral. You cannot remain neutral about the person of Jesus. You either embrace Him by faith or reject Him. I'll, I'll end with this. You know the name C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, famous Christian author from the middle 20th century. C.S. Lewis put it this way. You've got to make up your mind about Jesus. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's the Lord. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. He's a liar if he's making false claims about himself and he's, not, and he's not who he says he is. Or he's a lunatic if he believes that he's God and he's not. But if he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, the only option that remains for you is that Jesus is Lord. So says the centurion in Mark 15, 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that Jesus breathed his last, that Roman soldier who stood by the persecution and the execution of Jesus after Jesus died, the centurion said, truly, this man is the Son of God. And so what I want to say to you, dear friends, in closing, is that the world needs our confession of Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. But before you can say with the church corporately, our Lord, you must say in your own heart, my Lord. Because what the church is, is the gathering of those who together say that Christ is our Lord, because individually in their hearts they have said, he is my Lord. Jesus Christ, God's only Son. Our Lord, what a beautiful thing it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have sent your Son into the world so as to reveal him to us, that we might know your will both for life and salvation. We pray that whether we have known these things for years and decades, or perhaps only for moments, that you would make them tender to our hearts, make these truths stamped upon us that we might pursue all of our lives the person and work of Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord, in whose name we pray.
Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit etchingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.